This is Mate, a digital radio show about marketing, advertising, technology, and entrepreneurship. And each week we interview an expert guest about interesting topics like digital marketing, the latest innovative tech, and what it all means for the business world. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and I'm a digital strategist and entrepreneur. Today, we're speaking with Will Egan. Now, I describe Will as a technical marketer. Today, we talk about marketing technology, A-B testing, agile marketing, data and analytics, and why coding matters in education. This really is an amazing episode. So let's get started. So welcome to the podcast, Will. Introduce yourself. I'm Will. I'm a technical marketer based here in Melbourne. Um, My background is in uh, software development and marketing, put those two things together, and mainly what I do today is a lot of online marketing. Can we kind of dig into that a little bit, technical marketing? What does that, what, what, how does that mean to you? Maybe it's probably best to tell you the story of where it all started for me. Yeah, then. cool. Yeah, um, so actually just before we get into that, so we met at Monash University yeah. um, back when you were studying marketing, like pure marketing, Yeah. and I think you always had a bit of an interest in um you know, the technical side of things, you know, you're building your own website and, and you know, Peter Wagstaff actually introduced us at a, one of the careers nights, I think. Yeah. Shout out, shout out to Wags if you're listening. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I think since then, like, you just became more and more, like, technical focus, whereas I kind of went more into, like, pure play marketing, even mm. though I had this underlying interest of technology. So, yeah, tell me about what, what kind of happened since, yeah. since you left uni. Well, I think it actually starts a little bit earlier. So, okay. Um, when I was younger, I, uh, was really interested in IT and it was mainly because my dad, um, worked at Melbourne IT for a little while, which was the domain registrar kind of in the late nineties, uh, when it was part of Melbourne university. And I used to go into his office and build websites when I was a kid. So I built a Pokemon, like a Pokedex. I'm still into <laughs> Pokemon. Pokemon goes coming out, everybody, if you, uh, like your, your Pokemon, uh, yeah, I built a Pokedex in Netscape, and it was all hard-coded, but that kind of triggered this interest. Because that's what all kids do. They build Pokedexes on, and websites when they're how old are you? Uh, 13, 12, 13, yeah. something like that. <laughs> yeah. And then I built a Lego website. I didn't have my well. shoes at 13 years old, and you're <laughs> building websites. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so, like, very early on, I just kind of started to get obsessed with computers, and... Um, even by around 16 and 17, I was trying to like set up eBay businesses. Mm-hmm. And my mum was always a good kind of businesswoman and entrepreneur. So we used to have lots of different kind of ventures that we'd start there. Yeah, then year 12 and year 11, um, school took over your life and, um, took a gap year and came and worked at Ausmed for a year in reception. And I noticed that there were two people working in kind of a customer service type role whose responsibility was to send emails out. And what they'd do is they'd have a database, they'd copy 50 email addresses at a time, um, put that into an Outlook email, and then paste in from Word an email that they'd kind of designed or composed in Word. Yeah. This was in about 2007-8, so it was really early days. That's like the definition of like manual. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Before we kind of get right into this, um, maybe a good point just to interject and ask, what is Osmed? 
Sure. So Osmed's a leading health education company based here in Melbourne. Uh, we're probably the largest provider of professional development to nurses and midwives. So um, if you're in healthcare, you definitely have heard of us um, here in Australia. And now we're uh, entering the UK and Canada as well through the web. Um, basically, we provide professional development services to nurses and midwives. So that's conferences, seminars, but then this huge body of online learning as well. Mm-hmm. So, so let's just, sorry to, to, to do, um, jump out and, and in, but so back to, um, copy and pasting emails to do kind of the batch sends 50 at a time. Yeah. So I was just minding my own business, um, working in reception and kind of noticed this going on and thought, ah, oh, that's definitely something that could be automated. Yeah. And if MailChimp did exist in 2008, it was probably a startup mm-hmm. in San Francisco. Um, definitely wasn't anything like that available. So I found this um, mail server program and I downloaded it and installed it on our server, set up a server in the office and we were able to start doing email marketing much more professionally, construct the templates in HTML and CSS. Um, but within about a month, we'd already been put onto the blacklist of senders <laughs> because our rate of email, our IP, had just gone right up. Mm-hmm. Um, so then for a few months, I'd be swapping out telecom providers. So I'd get new IPs all the time. <laughs> so I could bypass the, the spam lists. Uh, yeah. This was in like 2008. No one was doing email marketing, nothing like what they're doing it today. Mm. Um, so yeah, that was where it all started with the technical marketing. Yeah. The following year started at Monash. Thought, oh, marketing's where it's at. Bachelor of Business. Really enjoyed that. But alongside working in a company, where we were able to practice these things, the rate of change and, and innovation that was happening in that space, especially around 2008, eight nine, where social media started to come on, um, was just too exciting. So in the end, I uh, didn't end up finishing that. Um, and yeah, you can you can go into the league of uh, of entrepreneurs and professionals that dropped out of uni, mm. in the likes of Mark Zuckerberg and you know all those other famous people. You can be one of them too. Yeah, maybe one day. <laughs> I think the thing, though, with university education is I absolutely value it. I think there's a, it's a bit of a misnomer to say it's one or the other. In, in my opinion, it's absolutely essential. Um, it's a, a really fantastic way to learn something um, and really understand something. But, you know, time is of the essence. And if you've got a, a bird in the hand, especially when it comes to a career path or opportunity, mm-hmm. um, you definitely take that so you left uni, you, you started working at Osmed full-time and really kind of got digging and, and started to do some amazing things um, here. And we're in the Osmed offices today recording this uh, this podcast. So you kind of rose through the ranks pretty quickly from, you know, just doing some casual reception work to now you're the chief marketing officer. Yeah. yeah. It had been for a couple of years. Yeah, two or three years now. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, um, pretty exciting. It's, you know, it's a glorious title, um, <laughs> which is, you know, nice to have. I mean, I don't place too much value on titles, to be honest. It just helps people outside of the company understand who they might be talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Osmed is a family owned business, mm-hmm. um, owned by your mother. Yeah. I, I just wanted to kind of touch on this just really quickly because I know you said you don't place too much emphasis on titles, but, you know, as a kind of mid to late 20 year old, um, guy, it, 
being a chief marketing officer is a pretty big achievement, regardless of the size of the company or who owns it or whether it's in the family. You know, like that. Mm. That's pretty amazing. Like, how have you risen the ranks so quickly, and and what does that kind of mean? Yeah. Well, I think you know, ability is definitely uh, kind of one determinant um, factor of kind of promotion, I guess, and um, the attitude as well that somebody brings to the role. Is also a big part of that. So I think I always have put a lot of effort into whatever it is that I've done. Um, and I think, you know, even while I was at Monash for those few years, I, I was building things, building websites. I think I, I remember I built one called Lecture Talks, which was where people could share notes of lectures that they were reading, mm-hmm. uh, that they were attending so that no one else had, you know, collaboratively we yeah. could take notes of the whole lecture as a class. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just think, you know, there's two things. There's people who have vision and, and there's people who get things done. Um, we call them bulldozers, really. Like they just make things happen really at scale, on mass and quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and you put those two things together. And I think that's, that's probably the two things that I value in my career and in terms of the way I work. So having a vision and then implementing it and delivering on it mm-hmm. is a big part of that. And I think that's probably what what we've been talking about when we when we say the term technical marketer. So just to kind of parlay what you've what you've just kind of left on, um, what does technical marketer mean to you? Yeah, so I think it's somebody who can really understand the technology itself and to the point where they're actually able to implement whatever it is that they want done. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in marketing, we spend a lot of time coming up with strategies, experimenting with ideas, um, but a lot of that stuff happens in an environment where there's no data to validate it or customers, essentially. Mm-hmm. Technical marketers are able to implement the idea straight away, report on how it's performing, and change their implementation based on whatever that data gives in terms of feedback. I think it's the ability to not only come up with a marketing campaign, but also implement it technically, whether that be developing emails, building web pages, landing pages, um, building web apps, building features in an app, um, or analyzing the data mm-hmm. that, that comes as a result of the activity. Yep. Because I think most marketers are probably in the in the space of, you know, um, developing a brand. And, you know, like I've worked in advertising agencies for a number of years and and a lot of the output is a TV ad or a, or a you know, print thing or something. And, like, a lot of those are not very quantifiable. Yeah. And when it comes to digital, like one of the, and that the space that I work in now in, in digital marketing and, and digital strategy. And one of the exciting things for, for me is the ability to be able to track and measure everything you do. Like you can put a, a banner ad up on a website and you can see how many times it's been seen, how many times it's been clicked. Um, and then how long each of those, those visitors spent on your site, whether they bought in a thing or, or not, mm. whether it was valuable. There's a real ROI metric you can place on digital. Yeah. Whereas, if I put a billboard on the Monash Freeway, um, I can, the media company can tell me, well, they can, they estimate the number of impressions, and I'm using air quotes here, but impressions is, you know, through traffic of cars or, or whatever. Um, but there's no, there's no click through rate. There's no, like, I don't know what those people did. Mm. I don't, I, I can't tell what they thought. I can't tell where they, where they, where they went or what they thought of the ad or, if it had any impact at all, there's literally no way I can t- tell unless unless I turn off all my marketing 
across, you know, every channel and go, I'm just going to do one billboard for a month. And the next month I do no billboard. And then I do the billboard again and no billboard. And then you go, okay, we get this many more sales when we run the billboard. Yeah. But that's not a realistic way to run marketing. So. Exactly. And that's not the point either. You you don't really want to validate that billboards are successful. Right? You just want to build your business or yeah. make sales or get conversions mm-hmm. or whatever it is that, it, it, you know, determines value in your product. Yeah. I think, though, what you say there around data is probably the key um, divider between a technical marker, marketer and a traditional marketer. Mm-hmm. If there's no data, like what you described, present in the activity, then a technical marketer is probably not needed. Mm-hmm. If, there, if, a bill, if a billboard can't provide any data, then it's probably not technical marketing. Because yep. there's nothing to anchor the campaign or the advertising against in terms of determining whether it's successful. Yeah. And to your point before, like it doesn't mean that that's not valuable. It plays a part in the overall marketing plan. Mm. But in terms of, you know, digital and, and understanding the impact that, um, that that has, uh, I think, um, there's some real benefits to gain from being able to understand the data and the implications. Yeah. Now we were talking before, Will, about, um, the, 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 the few, I guess, stages of, of technical marketing and there's, you know, setting things up, there's understanding, um, how that impacts behavior and there's, um, and there's kind of what it all means. So tell me in your own words what, what those stages are and how, how you kind of go about them. Yeah. Well, I think, so in the realm of we're talking about products that have a technical center. Um, so not FMCG products, a Mars bar and your 7-Eleven or something like that. But say a web application like Facebook or an e-commerce store like Maya or Amazon. And typically those two platforms exist under two models. The first is in the software world, a pirate metric model, which is activation, acquisition, retention, referral, revenue, and potentially resurrection of customers who are no longer engaged. In the e-commerce play, you know, all you're really optimizing for is traffic, conversion rate, average order value, and frequency. And maybe inside frequency, you have your other RFM metrics, um, recency, frequency, monetary. Mm-hmm. So when designing strategies around those two types of products, you know, there's certain metrics there that you want to improve and there's others that you want to reduce. Um, and any, any strategy that talks to, for example, in the e-commerce world, how, how do we increase traffic? How do we increase conversion rate? How do we increase average order value? How do we increase frequency of purchase? Any strategy that talks to one of those points will increase the bottom line and mm-hmm. therefore be successful. Um, so that kind of really drives the thinking in the first instance. Um, you anchor that thinking to a data point that you can actually measure. Mm-hmm. Then coming up with campaigns and ideas on how to affect those numbers in a positive manner and then implementing it. I think in most environments, you know, you have teams that are set up, they're quite siloed where you basically have a value chain where these things are passing from one person to the next person to the next person, um, maybe from the strategist to the designer to the um, producer, the marketing producer, uh, to the person who deploys the campaign, and maybe even a fifth person who actually measures the performance. But the problem in a model like that is that the person with the most knowledge is the person who measures how the campaign performs. And the analyst at the end. The analyst yeah. at the end. Yeah. They're the ones who actually know what worked and what didn't. Yeah. And I can tell you right now, um, that's how most businesses work. That's how most agencies work. I mean, 
you know, in every agency I've worked in, there's a separate role. There's the, the copywriter, there's the designer, there's the producer, there's the front end uh, developer, the back end developer who deploys, there's the, um, the analyst at the end. And to be honest, very rarely does it come full circle back to the strategist um, yeah. to inform future, future decisions. Yeah. And the other problem is in a model like that, each person's driven by a desire to get the job done, not to actually necessarily, um, have a positive or successful campaign. Mm-hmm. So they go home and they, at the end of the day, having a sense of satisfaction, um, and completion from having finished the design or yeah. deployed the campaign yeah. or completed the strategy. Um, and I think Karl Marx and, you know, I'm not a socialist, uh, by any stretch. I do believe in a good, equal and well looked after society where wealth distributed, but Karl Marx did say that you know, if people can see the beginning, middle of, and end of their work, they'll feel much more engaged. Mm-hmm. And I think spreading out that value across five roles is kind of counterproductive. However, it's hard to, to bring it all under one role because it requires somebody with incredible ability. Mm. Um, and that's where the concepts of agile marketing start to come into play. Mm-hmm. And they drive out of the world of lean startup and agile development, um, applying the same methodologies there that exist in software. Uh, to the marketing team. So I think under a model where you have those kind of steps, five roles, something moving from idea to it's finished and the client can be informed, the work's done, um, you're actually as a business relying on communication. So that's why probably a lot of companies talk about that. They focus around improving communication, de-siloing, um, getting people talking, more meetings. Um, but it's not a natural way for the, that information to really flow. People need to be able to access it in their own right, mm-hmm. and they need to be orientated around changing that number of sign-ups or conversions or traffic to the site, whatever it is that the business is effectively buying. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about agile marketing, and how does that kind of fix fix this issue of silos? Yeah, so like everything, there's a set of philosophies around how it works, um, kind of organized by some guys in San Francisco, maybe 2008, 2009, and kind of um, rose in parallel to the agile software movement mm-hmm. um, that uh, Ken Beck, I think, from Facebook was a big driver of that. So it might be good to, can you just give us a, a bit of a one-liner on what that is, Absolutely. agile development? Yeah, agile development is the opposite of waterfall, if you're familiar with that. So what's a waterfall? Okay. So, <laughs> well, yeah. For those, for those yeah. who may be listening today that don't so, understand, any, you know. Waterfall is the way that we kind of all worked when we had those uh, Gantt charts. Gantt charts, yeah. yeah. Try trying to remember. I've almost removed them from my memory, thank, thank goodness. <laughs> uh, but where you, the idea was where you scoped out the entire project and then started building. But the problem with that model was that there may be a three- or six-month build time and the project couldn't account for any change. So if the requirements changed or the client or, uh, you know, the business wanted to change the way that the product worked, be it a website um, or marketing, uh, they would have to reset that entire process and go back to the planning stage. Agile marketing is about, and agile software development is about only planning in a general direction for the long term, but only scoping out maybe three weeks of work in a sprint. Mm-hmm. And then breaking down bigger problems into smaller problems and smaller bets that you can implement in one or two days' work, deploying those things and building things that are not codependent on each other. 
Um, in software, they call them microservices, where everything can work independently. Um, and in advertising, it's about biasing, you know, building campaigns in smaller um, bytes and deploying them to get feedback, not coming up with this big bang strategy. And the first time a customer sees it is when it's 100% done. Mm. It's about making lots of smaller bets and informing an overall bigger campaign and continuing to iterate through that cycle. It's very different for uh, agencies as it is for in-house because clients typically want a big bang campaign or they think they that that's what they need. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can reduce a lot of waste. It can definitely improve people's sense of satisfaction from their work um, because they're getting feedback much faster. And... Obviously, it can it will perform a lot better. Mm. And I, I think a lot of uh, like it, the conversations that I have with clients about you know test and learn approaches are just never ending. Everyone wants to do test and learn, and then you try and actually implement it, and they default to this kind of um, this behavior that that they're just used to doing, which is the waterfall approach you described. We need to scope out the entire project and we can't start stage two before stage one's done and we can't do stage three before stage two's done because there's a process and, you know, like there's just rigid uh, corporate things that kind of get in the way and, and they can't shift their mindset. Yeah, like sometimes even people think just if it goes slower, it's been con- more considered. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not necessarily the case. Yeah. And, and is that kind of... Is this this the, the what you were sort of talking about when when you mentioned to me earlier um, this idea of iterative testing? Absolutely. So, you know, in an environment um, here at Osmed and in many other companies like this, where we set out a clear set of metrics that we're trying to improve. So I described the e-commerce model and I described the pirate metric model. Underneath every single one of those, you need to set that, define that metric, and also be able to track it you know, on an hourly basis, but basically in lifetime, know what's happening. Then every campaign that you're doing is um, prescribed a metric that it's supposed to affect or impact. Um, And then it comes down to the marketer's choice as to whether they want to roll this out in an A-B testing model or if they're that confident based on previous tests or for whatever reason, based on uh, time, um, based on the size of the change, uh, that they can choose to just deploy it directly. But what we're monitoring is we call them vital signs because we're in healthcare. Um, I think in lean startup, uh, they, they talk about them as, uh, yeah, like your key metrics, not your vanity metrics. Um, but in our case, vital signs. Mm-hmm. So as long as none of those things go down, in, in a sense, our patient or our product or website yep. is, doesn't, uh, isn't worse off, um, then we kind of read that as a win especially if it's in line with you know, something the business was wanting to do anyway. Yeah. So you mentioned A-B testing. What, what is that? So A-B testing is um, running variants of features of the website or even adverts. Um, mm-hmm. It's been done in direct marketing for a long time uh, where you run a variant against the baseline of whatever normally happens on the website or what normally goes out. And then you measure the performance of that test against the baseline mm-hmm. uh, to determine whether it's more likely to increase uh, sales or conversions or the actions on the site that you desire. So an example might be on, on a landing page where you're trying to get people to sign up for your service. Mm-hmm. You put a, a different picture uh, or something yeah, so or there's... a different copy and you test that against the, the original version and see which one performs the best. Yeah. 
Pretty much. Um, there's kind of these these ones that always get rolled out like, ah, oh, you can change colors, you can change pictures, you can change copy, things like that. They get you wins up until a certain point. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also other ones like back-end things, like what if we change the locators, locations of the payment gateways, the servers? So I remember reading a case study once of uh, all of the payment gateways for um, Obama's campaign in 2008 were sitting on the east coast of the U.S., the latency between the um, post and the uh, response from the user's browser on the West Coast uh, was maybe two or three seconds. And even during that period, there would be some drop-off. Mm-hmm. So, setting, so you know, the, the cost to a business to build a data center or um, set of servers to handle payment requests on the West Coast is very high. But if we can s- siphon off 5% of traffic just to one server, and let that process for a larger, just for that 5% of people, and then mm-hmm. see what the, the effect of that is mm-hmm. in terms of the speed and the kind of conversion rate. That's a small enough um, bet to take. It's low cost, and we can kind of validate the the idea that, or our view that if we put a data center on the West Coast and build that, um, it will increase conversion. Mm-hmm. So it starts from the point of you have a hypothesis about what's going to affect behavior, um, and you you do a low cost test. Yeah. And this is very very much in the in the vein of the lean startup model mm. building a, an MVP or minimum viable product um, and you you kind of just try things yeah. uh, as quickly and as cheaply as you can and you and you learn you get feedback from it. Yeah. And it might work and then you go crap we should we should do this for all of our traffic or well that was a waste of time let's try something else. Yeah. Exactly, and I've got a really good example of one that um, happened here at Osmed once. So we offer a subscription service, and we had a lot of people calling in, maybe three or five people a day, asking if they could pay by EFT, uh, um, you know, direct debit from their mm-hmm. bank account. So the admin team um, put a request into IT saying, oh, we really need to be able to support direct debit. It's a massive, um, you know, demand from customers. Mm-hmm. And we looked into it, and it was going to be about three months' work. Um, mm-hmm. It was huge, huge initiative. And like three months of development time yeah, three to months actually of implement time. the back end to enable that. Yeah, set yep. it all up, handle all the kind of monitoring of where the payments are going through. Yep. Banks have these kind of archaic, <laughs> in some sense. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? Feeds of <laughs> transaction data. Yeah. Um, they send it to you in, like, Morse code or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and... It's like a text file, basically. Yeah. It's not an API. There's actually a text file that gets sent to you. I mean, it may have changed in the last year or two, but that's what it was. Mm-hmm. So we thought, oh, what's the smallest change we could make to validate the assumptions that admin have? And what we did was we put a button on the payment page um, that said pay by AFT, mm-hmm. and uh, we would just measure how many people clicked it. So <laughs> Wait, so... You didn't implement it. You just put a button there. Yeah. So what happened when you what happened when you when you click the button? So it looked really really polished, and then it would you know it didn't look like an MVP, and that's one of the kind of really important points. This you don't want to degrade the product experience just to learn. You need to sustain that kind of the design, the aesthetics, um, and the reliability, especially on a payment page. Mm -hmm. It can't just appear fake or broken. Um, So, but was it fake? It was fake. Yeah, it was just. (laughs) a hard-coded browser alert um, that would pop up and say, please call our offices to process this offline. Right, okay. Right. Um, anyway, so I think less than 1% of people on that page click the button. Yep. 
But the interesting thing was 90% or thereabouts, 80 to 90% of people who clicked the button and got the message closed the dialog box and then switched over to credit card and made the payment through credit card instead. <laughs> so what admin was actually getting was that kind of like point, you know, 0.05% or 0.1% of 1% mm -hmm. of people who didn't want to pay by credit card calling up. Mm -hmm. Their experience of that was that there's high demand for this, um, but in the big scheme of things, there wasn't. My name is Adam Jaffrey, and you're listening to Mate Podcast. Today, we're speaking with Will Egan about technical marketing. Now, later on in the show, we talk to Will about why coding literacy is important and what is really exciting him about data and analytics. But before we get to that, I asked him to talk about some theories on creating a sticky product, one which retains users. Here is how he responded. Um, there's actually two guys out of the US. One's at Stanford. His name's BJ Fogg. I definitely recommend reading some of his uh, kind of research. Mm -hmm. And there's a guy, another guy named Nir Eyal. Um, I think that's how you pronounce his last name. But he wrote a book called Hooked. Yep. And what he talks about is these four stages of retention. Um, how do you create a hook in a product? And the first one is that there needs to be a trigger. So these products are built around a trigger. Uber, like if, you, if I say to you Uber you can reverse engineer that to tell me why you would need to use it. Mm -hmm. Same with Google, same with Facebook, same with something like Amazon. Um, those are those companies that tied their solution, their core value prop directly around a problem a user would have. The moment that trigger happens, the user then needs the ability to act on it. That's where the mobile web um, is, has become so strong. So Facebook, Facebook's traffic through the, through the mobile apps is through the roof because Facebook is something you use when you're bored. Mm-hmm. And the only device you have on you at the time is the app. It's your phone, so you open the app. The next thing is, uh, so you've got motivation, ability, so then you need a reward. And the interesting thing about reward is that these apps are able to deliver a sense of reward to you within seconds. You know, And when, when reward's being created, it's actually being done through anticipation. So these apps, what they design, especially things around notifications, news feeds, um, they, they create an interaction that you can have with the app that's so small um, in pursuit of a reward. Mm -hmm. So scrolling through your news, news feed, just that one flick down to load new stories, you're actually seeking something interesting. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing there is that every time that you don't get that, you, you keep scrolling. Mm -hmm. So the algorithm's designed. There was some research done, and um, Nia talks about this, where... That's famous. Uh, there was a pigeon who would peck at a disc. A researcher put a pigeon kind of in a box, I guess, um, and the pigeon would peck at this disc. And every time it pecked, uh, some grain would come out for the pigeon to eat. So there's a reward. Um, now, let's just say I joke about this with my brother when I was telling him that the pecks per minute rate was five pecks per minute when the pigeon could predict that every time it pecked, it would get fed. The moment that the researcher introduced variability... Which was when, which is where it pecks and it doesn't necessarily get food. So it might get it on the first peck, but then not until the fourth peck. Mm. The pecks per minute just went through the roof. Mm -hmm. right, let's just say it went to 10 or 15. And that's because variability came in. Mm -hmm. So the pigeon wasn't actually seeking food anymore. It was just seeking your reward. And right. the chance that it wouldn't get the reward increased its, the interaction that it would have in pursuit of the reward. Mm -hmm. So scrolling through your newsfeed, the fact that you only get content you're interested in every two or three scrolls is 
is actually part of the addiction that's being built around yeah. that thing. So <laughs> as you're talking through the the pecking um, story, that reminds me a lot of you know, um, gambling and, and why mm. gambling is such a sticky and addictive activity because there's an unknown... Um, uh, amount of reward that you get and it and it's you know this inconsistent reward that keeps you coming back for more there's a huge amount of research about why that occurs and, and how you know the psychology of the brain and the chemicals that um, releases and that kind of thing mm. um so it's interesting that you draw a, a very strong tangent between um scrolling through your newsfeed on facebook and and gambling it's almost like a gamble each time you flick through yeah. to try and find something new yeah it is <laughs> yeah absolutely it's i mean the psychology underneath all of this is quite scary. And at the end of um, a lot of these books, you always see, you know, talks, uh, chapters around morality and ethics yep. of using this information. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's, it's actually a challenge, just a, a small kind of deviation to our discussion for marketers to kind of deal with those things because they are changing behavior and they are kind of causing people to do things that they otherwise wouldn't do, especially through things like conversion rate optimization. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, for myself, like it's a question of morals, and for myself, it needs to be something that benefits the person as well. Mm. If you do that in pursuit of uh, and create a habit that's not healthy for this person, and one could argue that Facebook is not mm-hmm. a healthy habit, you know, it's not really the best thing for society, but that's a personal... Well, that's a gray area, and there's a lot of gray areas as well, you know. Uh, We're kind of going down a bit of a rabbit hole, but is Facebook good? Well, Mark Zuckerberg would argue that he's connecting the world, and it's it's good for communication, and there's a huge amount of positive Mm. benefits, and I I, I agree in in some respects. But also, there's imagine, what's the lost productivity that that you have um, from from Facebook? Yeah, I think the average user's on there for 40, 45 minutes a day now. Yep. So, like, one one twenty-fourth or one thirtieth of your life. At this rate, you're going to be on Facebook. And and the majority of... And Australia, actually, I think, has one of the highest um, Facebook usages in, in the world. Um, really? I don't have the numbers on hand right now. I'll grab them and pop them in the show notes. But um, the, the majority of people who use Facebook in Australia use it daily. So, like, in, in terms of, like, usage numbers, a lot of um, tech companies will report... Um, the MAU uh, number, monthly, monthly active, active users. users. Yeah. And uh, in Facebook, um, for Australian stats, it's um, the the DAU, the daily active users, is, you know, like 70 or 80% of the MAU. So yeah. majority of people who use Facebook in Australia use it daily and also use it for a long time daily. So what's the implications of that? I'm, I'm not quite sure. Um but uh, it's it's definitely an interesting discussion. <laughs> Absolutely, an entire podcast in itself. Yeah, yeah. Another another kind of we were talking before we before we hit record about a few other interesting people you've met. For example, um, the the guys uh, behind Moz, um, which is an SEO tool. So Jillian and, and Ran, mm. um, Dan, one of the co-founders of Optimizely. and also um, Avinash Korshik, I think is how you pronounce yeah, his surname, yeah. um, who. I think, I don't know if he's still going by the title uh, Analytics Evangelist at Google. at Google. Yeah, I think he's somewhere else now. But So yeah. he was, he's probably one of the the most, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, one of the one of the forefront thinkers on analytics on the web um, yeah. for probably the last five to ten years, and, and I'd say he still is today. He's probably, when I think of um, Avinash, I think of, 
you will, um, but kind of on steroids a little bit yeah. Um, yeah. a few years down the track. So, I mean, you've you've spent a little bit of time with with each of these people. What are some of the common themes that you've learned from them um, in terms of you know how they go about their work? What because they're obviously very successful. Yeah, I think one of the things that you observe straight away is that you know a lot of entrepreneurs are thinking across lots of different things at the same time. So like, you know, you might be working in a company, starting your own little kind of web application or platform, some landing pages, selling a service, and every kind of month you're coming up with a new idea of a product you could sell. With a lot of these people, they get really good at one thing and they get addicted to it and they focus on it, they understand it, they spend all their time trying to learn about it and it really comes across. So when you meet them, you know, they, they're just talking about it's probably the next big thing. Um, Gary Vaynerchuk from an earlier podcast, he's been going on about video content since 2006, 2007, yep. Yep. maybe even a little bit earlier with Wine Library TV. Mm-hmm. And even today, how's Gary Vaynerchuk rising again? Video. Through video content. So, so much video. So much video. That, <laughs> I, I think it's like we were talking earlier about scrolling through Facebook. Feed. Yeah. Like, that's probably the reward I'm seeking. That's my little <laughs> pellet that's coming out to this pigeon. Yeah. <laughs> Those videos are just astonishing. But people like Rand, um, they're just focusing on SEO. And a big area that he's looking at all the time is experimentation, testing, and kind of trying to game the algorithm. Um, people like Avinash, analytics is a big driver. He breaks down pages. And I was telling you earlier, the rate at which these people are able to think and interpret the information they're seeing as well is astonishing. So I remember chatting with Avinash and, you know, it was like, giving him information and getting answers back and thoughts back just as quickly as you would with a calculator. Mm-hmm. Right? Like it's just straight away, he's got some information, got it, he's identified something, he's noticed a problem. Um, and, you know, on top of that, they're kind of leaning on huge amounts of experience mm. in these areas. But focus is a big, a big part of what makes those people successful. That's really interesting. So focus, yeah. uh, it's a, the kind of two key themes you highlighted there. One is focus. The second, I think, is maybe agility of thinking. Yeah. Um, and, and that's kind of really interesting and exciting for me to, to think about um, as we go through our day-to-day lives and try to be successful in our careers and our entrepreneurial ventures and that kind of thing. How do you lean on those? Um, I think agility is probably something that most um, or a lot of people have, but maybe Maybe you need to combine that with the focus element because mm. we all have agility and we have very, when I say agility, I think maybe there's like a franticness to, oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. People trying to multitask on lots of things and, and we, we do a lot and we process things very quickly just because of the fact that we're so busy in our day to day lives. Mm. But if you, if you layer that over the top with focus, um, it becomes something very different instead of, you know, trying to do a million things at the same time, you are agile and, and, incredibly quick and efficient in one particular thing. Yeah. I think like the the US works a lot like that as well because you go into these companies in the US and people we you know even here in Australia where we think we have really dedicated roles in the US it's like another level again. There's so much specificity around who does what and because the workloads are so much bigger being in a larger country. Um so people become domain experts and if you go to a conference over in the US you know, you'll have one person's talk and they're the expert of SEO. This person's the expert copywriting. You know, this person's the expert of psychology or consumer psychology. Um, 
But I think they still innovate and they're still incredibly uh, entrepreneurial, but it's within a kind of an, a narrow focus of analytics or, like I say, SEO. Mm. One thing that I wanted to kind of explore today is you've been, you've kind of got a bit of a side venture that you've been working on, um, Code the Future. Mm. So tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I think programming and coding is something that's, you know, I've always thought it's an incredibly uh, beneficial skill to have. And, you know, you, you just you go to a meetup or you go to a startup week and there's so many people with amazing ideas. The one hindrance, the one thing holding them back is typically the knowledge of the web or how to actually build it. And the problem that I see is when I left school, the iPhone just came out. And, you know, even today, very few schools, I mean, we're helping change that. And there's a huge number of organizations trying to make this not the case. But there's a lot of schools that either still aren't providing programming education or um, if they are, it might not be, you know, tangible and um, usable. So, you know, we can all leave school and um, participate in an economy. We can all write a book if we wanted to do that. Um, we can contribute to literature, arts, music, um, and society in general. But an emerging part of our society is technology. You know, and looking at the, the technology around us here, the fact that too few people know what's going on in between the glass and the metal of their iPhone um, is, a, is an issue. So what Code the Future is, is a attempt to help teachers and help schools improve coding literacy by getting volunteer software developers from the community to go into schools, be it their former school, um, the, the school their kids go to, or just a school in the local area, um, and volunteer for one or two hours a week, maybe only for one term, uh, to work alongside the teacher to teach coding. So they're teaching things like Arduino, so process is a language that they teach, HTML, CSS, Python, um, many, many different languages. A friend and I taught uh, Objective-C to a group of programmers at our old school, mm -hmm. or programmers, students, year nine students. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I might, I might just mention here, um, you know, you talked about the different languages, HTML, CSS, like these are all kind of web, web languages or, or programming languages. I'd kind of almost make the argument that, you know, what what's the value of learning French at school yeah. or, or, you know, Indonesian or Italian or whatever? Maybe a better language to learn is HTML yeah. or Objective-C or, you know, something that you can actually potentially use. Yeah, absolutely. I think, though, the other thing that people often say is why do kids need to learn how to code, right? Like that's a professional skill. Mm -hmm. The average kid couldn't do you kind of your tax return or be an accountant or then they don't understand the law fully. But I think my argument is that they don't understand technology even to just a basic level. Mm -hmm. They just know how to consume with it. Mm -hmm. And a language like French and German, you know, I think you're spot on. That they're, 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 they're ways that humans communicated, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago was like that was how we did business internationally. Mm -hmm. Today it's through the web. And... Learning things like HTML and CSS, even though languages are changing all the time, um, still teach you those fundamentals. Just like with English, you learn grammar, spelling, punctuation, sentence structure. Mm -hmm. If you can use these basic languages to teach children computational thinking, how to, how syntax actually works, how code kind of operates and runs, if-else statements, just whatever it might be, um, at least you give them this kind of fundamental anchoring in that technology 
world that they can fall back on. They could look at a feature on a site, like a sign-in button. How does that work? Uh, well, if the password matches, the user's password that they've just entered matches the one on the server, give them permission. If it doesn't, return a message, this was incorrect, try mm-hmm. again. Right? Like You show a kid an if-else statement and they work out, they can a- apply that to pretty much every function on a, on a website. Um, so that's the that's literacy. That's coding literacy. It's not to create, you know, a hundred programmers out of out of a hundred kids. Um, just like with football, you know, you give you teach every child to kick, and maybe one might end up playing in the AFL. Yeah. But they all know how to kick a ball. They all know how to anticipate, um, you know, hand-eye coordination, anticipate mm-hmm. a kick. Um, programming's the same. They need to know how it works at its core, and maybe one or two might end up in this career path. But the rest will know what's going on. Yeah. So it's about digital literacy. Yeah. Also, digital literacy and understanding the syntax and what it means and yeah, understanding the mystery. Yeah. You know, there's people who know coding and there's people who don't, and there's a huge amount of mystery that exists for those that don't. But when you start to learn it, you realise it's really not that complex. Yeah. It's just a, it's a form of creating. It's it is creative. It is yeah. a. You, you look at code and you think that is so rigid. How could that create anything beautiful or unique, or not unique but amazing? Um, but the way that it, the way that that so quickly translates to something incredibly creative, is what makes it something that people should be taught. So, well, what's exciting you right now? Yeah, <clears throat> so I think the biggest space coming back to technical marketing is probably data, and I mean. We could have gone back four years, and I could have said that, and it would have it would have a meaning that's completely different to what I'm talking about now. Mm-hmm. So data's gone through these various stages where the whole idea of inserting between the database of a website itself and the front end of the site where users are interacting, a whole set of marketing technologies, and even now like 10, 10 different technologies maybe on each website, um, is, is kind of a way of the past. So if you visit news.com.au or afl.com.au, there might be 30 to 35 different JavaScript calls that go off to different servers, traffic beacons, um, tracking technologies, whatever it might be. There's new technologies coming through now. They're coming, they're, they're kind of in startup. They're just moving out of that startup phase. And one that I recommend is Segment. So what Segment does is it is kind of like Google Tag Manager. It sits between the front end and the database itself. And it records all of the user's activity and then posts that activity to any of the market. So it, 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 it records it onto the segment database. And then from the segment database, so that it's not impeding the speed and performance of the site, it'll post all of that data to all, any of the marketing platforms that you've got connected. Mm-hmm. Facebook conversions, whatever. There's about 200 platforms you can connect to there. The second extension of that, which is something that I think only recently for segment put out, is data warehousing using services like Redshift on AWS, where all of that data actually sits in a database that, that you control. Mm-hmm. So you have the behavioral data of your users, what they did on the site, and then the stateful data of the user sitting in your database. Now you're not beholden to any one marketing platform. You have full control over your entire data set. What Segment then lets you do is if you connect a new product, something that might might um, interest you, like Amplitude is a new analytics tool that looks quite impressive. You connect it, turn it on, do a dump, and Segment will push all of the data historically that's been recorded on the site straight into that platform. 
The difference is from day one, you don't have to wait for data to accumulate. You mm-hmm. have all the historical data that all the other tools have. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a big um, breakthrough. The other side of that, which is really interesting, is that now that you have all this data, you actually don't even need those tools in the first place. Uh, you, especially when you take something like Google Analytics, it lets you look at your website in the same way that everybody else looks at their website. Right? So that's like walking into picking 100 businesses in the real world, pulling out their balance sheets and saying they all need to be the same. You all need to report on your business in exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that would not talk to any of the intricacies of the way that business works. The way Google has given you options to, to get around this in the past is through event tracking. But that's kind of like one of a 100 features that you'd use in Google Analytics. So what when you have access to all that behavioral data, all you need is an actual querying tool, which is where tools like Periscope come in, Snowplow, Mode Analytics. These are early-stage startups. They've been around for a year or two years. Yesterday, I was speaking to the guys in San Francisco from Mode Analytics, and what they let you do is query that Redshift server where all your behavioral data sits using SQL and output graphs and charts, just like what you would get in Google Analytics. Mm-hmm. But the thing is you can actually send huge uh, kind of huge amounts of data into Redshift from any source, and as long as you have a key matching up each of those records, you can get all of the Google Analytics data coming through, all your email open rates coming through into the one platform, all of the transactional data, com- transactional data coming over from Stripe, and then write queries like, of these pay- people who looked at this page, how many, what percentage of them did X, what percentage of them ended up purchasing, how many emails did we send this person to purchase? Mm. But you can get those reports in minutes. See, that's that's really exciting. Like, Because a lot of analytics still operates in silos, or your traffic data is in Google Analytics, or your emails in MailChimp, or your um, sales data is in a proprietary internal system or your inventory somewhere. Um, and if there's one customer ID, you know, I'm customer 101551, and you can match that between every single platform, yeah. then um, Everything's in you the can one really spot. understand what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, there's some um, cool guys doing stuff with this here in um, Australia. Uh, two people that I'd recommend following is Chris, Chris Hexton from Vero in Sydney. Um, Chris... Chris is one of the few integrations. His product, Vero, is a behavioral email marketing service, and it's one of the few email platforms that actually posts data back into Segment. Mm -hmm. So if somebody visits the site, you send them an email behaviorally, it'll actually record that that person uh, received the email, opened it, clicked in the email, put that into your data warehouse, and then another system like Google Analytics will tell you that that person showed up on the site. Mm -hmm. So closing down that whole journey. Mm -hmm. And the second guy that I'd recommend is Svee Balvin, if you check him out from Data Source. He, um, I mean, you said uh, Avinash Corsak is kind of me on steroids. Svee is definitely uh, in this space. And yeah. the stuff that uh, that they do is incredibly impressive. Yep. Um, yeah. And, and I guess this is why you're the, the technical marketer, <laughs> because you, you understand all this stuff and, and actually put it to use to generate real business results. Yeah. Um, so that's... But I think it's a mindset. You know, one thing I would say above all else is a lot of people you meet um, and, you know, uh, like you're like this, Adam, I think, you know, we, we've got vision. Uh, we, we, we're, we see something and we don't just think, oh, that's someone else's job. You mm-hmm. think, 
how can I learn that? Like, what's stopping me from knowing this? Right? And you look at something and say, well, there actually isn't anything. You just have to get on with it yeah. and start doing it. Yeah. And I think, like you say, tech, technical marketing, yes, but at the same time, just keep, if you see something that fascinates you, investigate. Mm. Don't just write it off and say, it's not my responsibility or, you know, keep opening doors for yourself, keep inquiring, um, and kind of have a, a just a desire to get knowledge. Be and curious. Be curious. Yeah. And you'll stumble across things like, you know, mode analytics, and then you'll wonder what, how it gets its data, and then you'll realize there's a Redshift service from Amazon that stores huge quantities of data. You think, well, where's all this coming from? Well, that's coming from sites. What's sending it there? Things like segment. Mm-hmm. And you start looking at mode, and you think, well, I need to know SQL. I need to get better at SQL because I want to get the data out of this platform in a way that it's meaningful to me. The only thing stopping me now is SQL, so you learn that. Uh, and then it's just this kind of compounding catalytic effect of technology that it spawns a need to know something else. The moment you know a new thing, you realize that you, there's something else that will improve your kind of skill in that area. Yep. So you need to know that as well. Yeah. It's like the moment you learn one new thing, it opens an entire world of other things you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I like that though. Just stay curious and, and continue to in, uh, investigate things. Yeah. It's a great point to uh, close this up on. Yeah. So, Will, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for it's having me, Adam. Thank you so much for listening to the third episode of Mate. If you're new today, it might interest you to know that you can find the show notes for the episode today at our website, matepodcast.com slash three. And there you'll find um, a list of resources and interesting links to things that we talked about in today's show. Now, today's show heralds a very important milestone. It is the introduction of Mate Podcast to the Apple iTunes podcast store. Now, that has a very important implication. It means that you can subscribe to the show, and I strongly encourage you to do so. But the other thing is that we're trying to get Mate Podcast on the new and noteworthy section of iTunes. Now, what this will mean is we can get the show broadcast and and promoted to a, a wider range of people. But to do so, we need your help. So what I ask from you is that after you've subscribed, please leave us a review. Hopefully it will be five stars and you're more than welcome to leave a comment, but that would go a long way to getting us up in that new and noteworthy section. So thank you in advance. Also, a very big thank you to Will Egan for coming on the show today. Thank you to Courtney Carmen for designing our beautiful, colorful Mate Podcast logo. And the music for today was by Nine Inch Nails, used under a Creative Commons license. This was Mate Podcast, and as always, it was made with love in Melbourne, Australia. I am your host, Adam Jaffrey. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time.